Good morning and blessings to each of you. Uh, it's an honor to be here. I, first time we've been here to uh, first <clears throat> to a regular morning service at Oasis. Uh, it's been a blessing to be here so far with you. I often think about uh, when we get together as uh, believers, we should uh, purpose to serve the Lord and we should purpose to worship the Lord and worship the Lord together. And you've certainly been uh, doing that this morning. It's been an honor to be here and enjoy the worship. Also, there's instruction that's needed, and uh, Brother Earl's given us some good instruction so far. And uh, fellowship, of course, is part of our morning service, and I've noticed some of that happening too. So uh, being among a group of believers is certainly an honor and a blessing today. You know, along the way, uh, <clears throat> one of my instructors said, if you would go out here to the highway and stop every tenth car and interview the person in the car, you would discover that every life has a story. Does your life have a story? Every life has a story. Is every li- is everybody's story worth hearing? It is. It really is. I know some of your stories, but not very many of them, but uh, it's been a blessing to get to know some of you. Uh, what, what about your life story? What uh, What happens... And what what uh, is God trying to do with it? If you open your Bible to Philippians, we'll be turning around to different scriptures this morning. <clears throat> open your Bible to Philippians. We'll find there uh, Paul has a comment about his life story. We're going to take most of our comments from First Peter, but talking now about as we as we uh, think about life and the way life works, uh, the way God brings us to Himself the way he takes the life he's given us and brings so many experiences together uh, so we become the people he wants us to be. In Philippians, in chapter 1 and in verse 12, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul says, I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Are there things that have happened to you that seem to be a puzzle to you? A little bit confusing, like why did this happen? Maybe there's some rejection, maybe there's some regret, maybe there's some shame, maybe there's some abuse, maybe there's, maybe there's some popularity, maybe you become wealthy, you know, why, why have all these things happened? And so as we look at those things, we can begin thinking that maybe I'm not worth anything, or I'm not important, or I can start thinking that I'm really important. Okay, Everybody should listen to me, and I've got it together. But Paul says, I want to read the verse again. I would you should understand, brethren, and uh, as we've already heard from Brother Dave too, that means brothers and sisters. Okay, So, uh, <clears throat> that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Can you say that? Is that true? Are you seeing the way in your life that the things that happen have brought you to a place that's closer to God, a place of abiding in the vine, as we've heard, a place where God's not cutting you off because you're a person who's bringing forth fruit. And so we look back over our lives. Some of you are very young. Some of us are kind of old. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> everybody has been given a life. We've all been given a life. There's a purpose for that. There's a reason for that. God has a reason why you are alive. Uh, working with people over the years, uh, I encounter people who don't want to live anymore. But I ask them, you know, you're still alive, aren't you? Yeah. Do you think God has a reason why you're still alive? Well, he does. And a little over a year ago, Lois and I were in a bad accident, and we were very close to not being here anymore. So because we are here, there's a message there. What's the message? Apparently, God has some things he wants us to do. Okay, You're still here. Whatever you've encountered may be close calls that you didn't even know about, but you're still here. And God has a purpose. And so as we think about our lives, <clears throat> we have so many dreams. We have so many longings. We have so many. Uh, we talked about love already this morning. Uh, we talk about the fact that people uh, have a longing to know each other. We have a longing to belong. We have a longing to not be rejected. Uh, we've also been directed to, to Isaiah 53, where Jesus was a person who was acquainted with sorrow, right? A man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. 
uh, he was rejected. And even though he was rejected, he did not turn away from God. He, he realized that that was part of what God had designed for him. Maybe somewhere along the way, you've been rejected. You've been hurt. You've been injured. And, you know, we can spend a lot of energy on those things. We can invest a lot of energy trying to figure out, why did my life go like this? Why didn't my plans work out? I had good plans, and they were godly plans, and God didn't let them work. Is it possible, and for sure it is possible, that the things that have happened to you have turned out so you could be furthering the gospel? And he does <coughs> purge us, right? He, he, he gives us. Let's turn over to Hebrews uh, chapter 12. Uh, <coughs> Brother Earl made me think real hard this morning when he said about what good teachers do. Now I'm wondering if I'm a good teacher or not. And so we'll, we'll find out. Uh, <laughs> I noticed it. <laughs> In Hebrews, I'd like to read the whole chapter, but we won't read the whole chapter. We'll start in verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, and I noticed in, in the passage there in John 15, the word love was in there pretty often. The word love was in there quite often. So really, love is the most powerful force in the world. Anybody, you realize that? The most powerful force in the world. Anybody read Aesop's fables? Like maybe, or those are things of the past, I guess. We don't do that anymore. My grandpa was born in 1902, and so I grew up on the farm with grandpa and I remember him telling me about Aesop's fables, and, and I think I've got it right, that one of these stories was the contest between the wind and the sun. Remember that one? Now, okay, that's starting to register. And I think Grandpa was trying to raise me. Well, my father worked away from home, and my grandpa was the farmer, so we lived in a big double house. and uh, So I, I learned a lot from Grandpa. He tried to instill in me the idea of love and that, that the sun had no trouble getting this man to take his coat off, right? But the wind couldn't blow it off. The more he blew, the more the man hung onto his coat. The sun came out and the coat came off. And so I've never forgotten some of those simple lessons that, that love is so important. And that love is the way God, God deals with us. And we don't always understand the love. So if you look at Rome, it, excuse me, Hebrews 12.6, For whom the Lord loves, what would you think it would say next? He blesses with good things. That's in the Bible too. But whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And we've already heard that from Brother Dave in the children's story here. Right? A little chastening in there. Uh, does that, that make us feel good? That's what. Have you experienced the chastening of the Lord? And then what happens? Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourgeth. That, the words are getting worse here. Okay, Scourgeth every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God is dealing with you as with sons and daughters. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? So the fact that you are chastened, the fact that God has interrupted your plans, indicates God's working in your life. And that's what I want to talk with you about this morning. The way God uses difficulties, uses persecution, uses suffering, uses chastening as a way of bringing us closer to him. And sometimes it it feels maybe like he's pushing us away, but the truth is that he loves us very much. And one of the questions I've been asking uh, groups in the last year or so is, did Jesus love the Pharisees? You know, it's difficult for us to get, I think as human beings, it's somewhat difficult for us to get a good definition of the word love. Because we sort of have an idea about what love would be like and how love would impact our lives and how nice it would be. But did Jesus love the Pharisees? What do you think? I'll ask this group. Is there a yes or a no? He loved the Pharisees? Did they feel loved? No? And <laughs> Now we're in trouble, right? So, does God love you? Do you always feel loved by God? Hmm. Does God know what he's doing? Is he doing it right? Is he doing it well? Yeah. Yeah, Lois and I grew up uh, fairly close to here, a little bit north. And we uh, we grew up in families that were physically very healthy, with very little sickness, very little injury, accident, anything of that sort. But it wasn't long after we got married that the things changed dramatically. And a little bit over a year after we were married, her parents were in a bad accident, and her mother was killed in the accident. And we started wondering, 
what's life about? And her parents had just moved. It was 1968 when we got married, and it was 1970 when that accident happened. And I don't see many old people here, but the Mennonite church was going through a lot of difficulty back in those days. And a new church had begun. The Eastern Pennsylvania Mennonite church had begun. And her parents had moved 50 miles north to Danville. And it was on the way up there. Uh, actually, the accident happened right here at Myerstown, but they were on their way north to Danville. And so we moved up there to be with the family. And I'll try to do this well. But God started bringing so much difficulty into our lives. We're just wondering what is happening. And that same year, our first baby was born, and she only lived six days. And God took her back again. And then a few years later, her father died uh, at only 57 years of age. It seemed a little too young to lose mother at 50 and father at 57. And then we had two handicapped children. And we just started asking ourselves, like, what, what is life about? You know, is there no, no stopping to all this? Was God working? Does he know what he's doing? Does he know what he's doing in your life? Is he making mistakes? So how do we respond? You know, the question is, what do we do? How do we live? How do we live and does whom the Lord loves, he chastens? Is that true? Is that true in your life? Okay. So I want you to think about your life. Think about your life today. Every life has a story. Every life has a story. God has a purpose for everybody's life. I don't care how young you are, if you're old enough to listen and hear, your life has a story. And God has a plan, and He has a purpose. And He's taking you somewhere, and He's building His kingdom. And He's pruning the vines. Okay, God is pruning the vines. And we need to think about the way God builds character into us, the way God builds holiness into us. Uh, and yeah, there's just so many things that we could talk about here. And I've thought about it over the years that we make plans. We made plans. Lois and I made plans. We made good plans. But God had other plans. And we have to realize that we submit our lives to a God who knows everything. Uh, he's a God of all wisdom. We talked about, Dave was talking about wisdom. Uh, a wise God who has power. The combination of wisdom and power are pretty important. Okay? We have people in the world who have power. Maybe Donald Trump. Does he have a lot of power? Uh, does he have a lot of wisdom? Uh, maybe we'll find out. I don't know. Uh, not everything looks so wise. What about Adolf Hitler? Did he have power? He had a lot of power, right? Did he have wisdom? Uh, so, so the fact that God is all powerful only becomes important when we know that he's all wise. And that power is always used to bless his people. And that power is always used in good ways so that the way it's used brings people closer to him. And we have to con- uh, con- give our lives over to God that reason. Well, uh, let's look over at 1 Peter 4. And 1 Peter chapter 4 is the text I'd like to use for today. I want to talk to you about the, the difficulties uh, that come along with life many times. I just shared a little bit of that with you. And if we would take time to hear everybody's story, there'd be a lot of stories, wouldn't there? There'd be a lot of stories. Every one of you has a story. Everyone. Everybody. Not a question. Uh, the way God develops our lives, uh, that's the way it works. All right, in chapter 3 of 1 Peter, uh, there's a very interesting verse here in chapter 3 of verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15, we're told, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that's in you, with meekness and fear. So, do you have a hope in you? And are you ready to give an answer to people who ask you? Well, why would they ask you? Let's look at the passage here. Look back further. And look at some of the things in the passage. Where, look back there in First Peter uh, chapter 1. <clears throat> we're told in verse 15. Uh, we're going to be looking around at First Peter here a little bit. In verse 15, chapter 1, 15. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it's written, be ye holy, for I am holy. 
Brother Earl was talking about how we become like Christ because we're in that vine. Well, God's holy and he's saying he wants you to be holy too. And then he goes on to teach us how to live a holy life. In verse 9 of chapter 2, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And so God has chosen you. You're holy. Holy means to be set apart. To be set apart. And when life goes exactly the way you plan everything, we soon feel like we're in charge. And we soon feel like that, that we, we know how to do things. We can control this. Uh, we, we can make all the right choices. And we're doing it right. And we're making money. So on. But God has called you to be a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then moving on, uh, one of the reasons that people might ask us about why we live the way we do is because we live well. Uh, as Anabaptist people especially, we think really seriously about doing what's right. We think seriously about obedience. think seriously about living holy lives. And so I just picked out uh, three verses here in First in Peter 2, in chapter 15, excuse me, chapter 2 and verse 15. For so is the will of God that with well-doing, okay, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Well-doing. Look over then unto chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for what? Well-doing. Are you doing well? Is it always easy to do well? Is God calling us to do well? Look down in chapter 4 and verse 19. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in what? It's the same thing, isn't it? So, I think the reason chapter 3, verse 15 and 16 are there is because the people of the world see us doing what's right. And they start asking us, you know, why, why, do, you, why do you live like this? So, if you look at chapter 3, I know I'm like moving around here a couple different places, but I'm trying to stay uh, with the idea of us, the life that God's given us, the difficulties brought into our lives, He's done that for a purpose. And the purpose is that he's bringing you closer to him. He's bringing you to the person he wants you to be. And so uh, we look in chapter 3 and we see, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Is that pretty common out there in the world today? uh, Okay, very, very, starts with very simple things here that to us are taken for granted. Uh, That, uh, excuse me, verse verse 3 of chapter 3, Whose adorning let it not be outward adorning, a plating of hair, wearing of gold or putting on apparel. Uh, you know, when people see the ladies of, of the Anabaptist community, the people of the world see you, they see a beauty that they can't find anywhere else. <clears throat> I could tell some stories about that over years of school. Uh, at Bible school, there were a group that went to uh, the West, and some of them went to Hollywood. I'm not sure why they went to Hollywood. But as they were there, they encountered some of these actresses and they saw these girls with veils and long dresses and they said, you are beautiful. Now, that's the capital. That's the beauty capital of the world, right? Hollywood is where all the beautiful people are. And yet they saw these plain girls and their response was beautiful. And, and you know, the question is then, do you have an answer for them? Be ready, verse 15. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks you a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. And so when people see how we live or they see us, we should be ready to give that kind of an answer. Uh, Then as you get also uh, in verse 7 of chapter 3, we have likewise ye husbands dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife. Is that common in the world today? Not so common in the world today. So, uh, the last two Saturdays, we had the blessing of being at, at some uh, weddings, including yesterday. And so, you know, it's a beautiful experience to see a Christian wedding and how, you know, they get directed by the minister there. This is how you live together. This is how you live in honor and blessing. Uh, and, and once again, what Peter's doing here is talking about practical things where we can illustrate to the world the kind of people that God has made us to be. 
the kind of people he wants us to be so the people of the world can see what God expects of those people who are abiding in the vine. Uh, verse 8 of chapter 3. Finally, be of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. And then he, he's, he goes on and talks about not rendering evil for evil, railing for railing. And then in verse 14, but, and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. In, even in spite of doing what's right, it's possible that we can suffer. And, you know, just like in, in our life, Lois and I, you know, why do those things happen? We don't, I can't give you an example or a reason, you know, why it should have happened. Did God have a purpose? So when those things did happen, it was an opportunity for us to show the world that God is the strength of our life. And no matter what's happened, I remember in the hospital, you know, the, the nurses offered her sedation when we had children who were handicapped. And she said, no. You know, we don't need to be knocked out to take the difficulties that God brings to us. You know, it's an opportunity to share the strength that God's put. And we'll look at some more of these things a little bit later on. And so if we suffer, we want to make sure we're suffering for righteousness' sake, for well-doing, and not for doing ill. And we want to make sure that when those sufferings come, that we call on God and we accept the strength that God puts in our lives for that time. So then moving over in chapter 3 to, uh, we looked at the verse 15, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. And then he goes on in chapter 3, verse 17, it's better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing. And there are all kinds of sufferings that could come into your life. Some are from within the church, some are outside the church. Somewhere within the family, somewhere outside the family, are all kinds of reasons why suffering could happen. For it's better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing. Verse 18, for Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just or the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God. And so then if we look at Hebrews here, uh, if you keep a hand in First Peter, looking over at Hebrews chapter 2. Why does God allow us? Why does Jesus allow us to be, to suffer? Well, one of the reasons is so we understand about him. And in chapter 2, in verse 10, chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 10, For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through what? Suffering. And when the Apostle Paul as he was stopped on the Damascus Road, uh, and then he was given the commission, what was he told? He was told uh, that, that God is going to show you how great things you must suffer for me. That's not typically the way we want to approach life. But it's the way God has chosen many times for that to happen. And so, <clears throat> we see that God uh, brings suffering into our lives for reasons, and now if you have your handout close by there, uh, see if I have my paper right here. Uh, <clears throat> the purpose of struggling and suffering, you know, why does God allow you to do that, or why does he bring those things into your life? Well, the first reason that I'm listing here is so you can identify with Jesus Christ. And so my purpose this morning is to share with you the, that God brings suffering, God allows suffering, and he's doing this for many different reasons. And this page is certainly not exhaustive. There are many other reasons why God might bring a suffering into your life. But let's just take a look at, at some of these things. Uh, Hebrews 5. We'll turn to some of these passages and read. And the reason I made uh, copies for you is because I think this could be a useful resource for you over time. Maybe to look at as a family or to think about. And If we just read them. You wouldn't have them maybe as close at hand, but maybe this will give you uh, an encouragement someday when you need it, when God uses it to bring encouragement to you. So you can identify with Jesus Christ in chapter 5 of Hebrews and verses 8 and 9. Though he were a son, that's Jesus, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto them that obey him. And so here we have the obedience and so when we suffer, we identify with Jesus. 
whatever cause of the suffering, whatever the reason for the suffering, however it happens to you, could be physical ailment, could be uh, false accusations, could be almost anything, <clears throat> so that we can identify with Jesus Christ. And we've already looked at, at chapter 2. So another reason, <clears throat> first reason that I list here is so you can identify with Jesus Christ. We go through life, and the sky is always blue, and the water is always calm, and the grass is always green, and we don't think so much about you know, what, what life is really all about. After a while, we sort of have things in control. But difficulties, uh, you've all had some level of difficulties, right? Okay, We've all, we all experience those things. Another reason is to bring, <clears throat> uh, to eliminate sin in our life. In 1 Peter 4, uh, verse 1, which is the text we're looking at, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. There's some people living in our house right now. Uh, they were coming from a distance for uh, <clears throat> a wedding. And so, uh, let's see, was it Friday morning, I think it was, the man walked up, woke up, but we had never seen him before. These are parents of people that have been students of mine. And so they came late and were upstairs sleeping, and we didn't know who was going to come down the steps. But anyway, I was visiting with some, having a men's meeting, and this man comes down the steps, and it turns out it was the father of the, uh, one of our students. And uh, he was in intense pain. And, and he had pain shooting into his back. And we had to do something quickly. So we got him to the emergency room. And turns out he had kidney stones. So if you've ever had that, you know, it's a painful experience. Uh, but, you know, when those things happen to us, we're not usually trying to figure out how we're going to make money that day, right? We're not usually trying to figure out you know, what we're going to plant in the garden. When you get that intense pain, when you suffer in the flesh, it has a way of separating you to think about God, right? And calling on God and depending on God because nothing else is going to help. And so, Paul, Peter tells us right here, for as much then as Christ has suffered in the, for us in the flesh, like Jesus suffered intensely, arm yourselves. Well, think about this. Think about the fact that you're going to suffer sometimes too. And when you do suffer, what's it going to do? It has the, it has the, the purpose of eliminating sin in our lives. It, it sort of takes us out of the world of, of the flesh and the, and the material things and it focuses on the spiritual things because sometimes that pain means you're going to die and very soon you're going to be meeting the Lord. And so we start focusing and thinking about that. So suffering has a way of bringing uh, our thoughts to to God and eliminating sin. Also, verses 12 and 13 in this passage, uh, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange things happen to you. Uh, we don't really know what we're going to face in this country. I just came across a word I've never seen before. I don't know who made up the word, but I like to read. And I came across the word Christophobia. Christophobia. So there's now a danger of being called Christophobic, okay? And just like the word homophobia, you know, has become sort of a crime, what if Christophobia becomes a crime? We're all guilty, right? Okay, and the way people will look at us. I'm not here to, to scare you about things like that, but difficult days are coming. I don't think there's any question about that. And so he's telling these people here, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial. There are difficult days ahead. So when that happens, don't be terribly surprised about it. Don't think it terribly strange. God has a plan. But rejoice. There's that word joy again. Okay? Inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad with exceeding joy. And so in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, midst of difficulty, there's joy. It's also an evidence of God in your life. Let's look over to 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5. No. Hopefully I can find all these verses quickly here. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5 says, So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for all your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. So when God brings difficulty into your life, it's the same as Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, we're told that whom the Lord loves, he chastens 
and scourges every person he receives. And here we see that the tribulations and persecutions are a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer. And so, it's an evidence of God in your life when there's tribulation and difficulty. Sometimes it happens in the church. Sometimes it happens with the neighbors. Sometimes it happens in your body. Sometimes it happens with false accusation. It can happen many, many different ways. <clears throat> but it's an evidence of God in your life. And the thing we want to keep in mind from First Peter 4 is that it's supposed to happen in well-doing, right? We don't want to suffer as evildoers. If we suffer for well-doing, there's joy. If we suffer as evildoers, then we deserve what's happened. Let's look also at 2 Timothy uh, 3.12. In 2 Timothy 3.12. We're told, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's pretty inclusive. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Back to the book of Job. Uh, he says, I know that when I am tried, I shall come forth as what? Anybody know? Gold. As gold tried in the fire. Yes. He says, I know when I'm tried. And the fire is what burns up all the stuff that's not supposed to be there. What's left, of course, is the gold that he wants to preserve. All right. Then also in James uh, chapter, I trust it's useful to you to, to look around at the passages here. And uh, see, like I say, hopefully I'll be able to turn quickly to them. So many of them. But uh, God has promised to bless his word more than my word. So, to develop patience in your life, James 1, verses 2. My brethren, count it all joy. There's the word again when you fall into divers temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Okay. But let patience have her perfect work. You may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So, when trials come, we should, instead of running away from them, we should think about, uh, here's another opportunity. And many times I ask my students, uh, do you like to play ball? Do you like to be up to bat? Yes. Well, when you're up to bat, that's a test. Right? You have to judge every ball that comes in there. And so God tests us the same way. And if you strike at the wrong ones, you're going to strike out. And God allows us to go through tests so that we discern uh, which is right and which is wrong and develops that patience. You know, yesterday we watched a couple innings of a ball game. Our son was playing and uh, they don't swing at every pitch, do they? The devil's trying to strike you out. And we need to use the patience to watch and make sure. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17 Paul was a man who, as Jesus, not to that extent, of course, was acquainted with sorrow and gives us much good counsel. To fit you for eternal life in Second Corinthians uh, chapter 4 and verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Uh, a light affliction? Is your, is your suffering a light affliction? Uh, well, relative to what might it be a light affliction? If we look on to verse 18, which is a verse that has, has I did not include that on your paper there, but uh, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So last evening we uh, came home for a wedding and went to visit some folks and talking with a young man who's doing a lot of study in Anabaptist history and so on. And uh, <clears throat> he's just 24 years old, about to get married. And um, asking questions about, well, how do you make decisions? And how do you decide how to do this? How will you support your family? And so on. So I, I tried to address this type of thing. We didn't really look at this verse. But so what things are, what things are going to last forever relative to what things are going to pass away? That's what I tried to encourage him to think about. And so I was asked the question, well, how did you make your decisions in life now that you're 70 years old. Uh, and I said, well, what I did was 
when I was 30 years old, I started looking at my life, and life has kind of a trajectory. It sort of goes like this, you know, starts over here, and eventually we will pass away. So I, I started looking when I was somewhere around 30-ish. I started looking at, well, what's going to happen if I stay on this path I'm on right now, and I get to be 70? What will what will life look like then? You know, will I be happy that I made the choices? Uh, you know, I'll probably have more cows and more tractors and more farms. But when I'm 70, is that what I want to look back on? Or do I want to look back on something else? And one of the passages that gripped my heart was this one. While we look not, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are for time, but the things which are not seen are for eternity. So, can you make investments for eternity that will then determine where your life goes? <clears throat> the next one, to prove that God is the strength of your life in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Uh, a verse that always grips my heart a lot. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. For we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Your body is an earthen vessel, right? It's made out of dirt. Is that what we're made out of? Anybody anybody know what those clay pots look like that my grandma always put her geraniums in? You know what I mean? Those heavy clay pots. Today we use plastic. They're not so heavy. But my grandma had geraniums everywhere. <clears throat> and so in the fall, she'd dig them out. She'd get me to dig them out. And then we had all these clay pots. And I'd put them in there and then carry them upstairs and put them on all the windowsills, which were big, wide windowsills. Geraniums everywhere. Uh, but occasionally I'd drop one on the sidewalk. Then what? Yeah, that one was junk, okay. But what if you would drop one of those clay pots on the sidewalk and it wouldn't break? That'd be a little different, wouldn't it? But what does he say in 4.7 here? 2 Corinthians 4.7, we have this treasure, what? Everything God's given you is in this earthen vessel. It's in this body. Are you taking care of it? And when we get into difficult situations and we don't break, it proves that there's something in that clay that not everybody has. Okay? We, we have this treasure in earthen vessel. We're pretty fragile. We break easily and quickly. But when we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And so when we are troubled on every side yet not distressed, we're perplexed but not in despair, Persecuted but not forsaken. Cast down but not destroyed. And so we, we're faced with so many difficulties, but God is in us so that we do not fall apart. To prove that God is the strength of your life. To experience God's discipline in your life. We already talked about that one from Hebrews uh, 12. So you can identify with those who suffer. We're still in Second Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> and this is so important. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. He's talking here once again about being connected with God the Father and the Son. Verse 4, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Why? If you have an issue, if you've got a problem in your life, uh, like with handicapped children, we discovered that we needed a lot of help. Who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. By the same comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. So God allows you to go through things so that you can help other people who are going through the same things. So if you have a baby that dies and somebody who comes to comfort you and they've never had that experience and they say, we know how you feel. Do they know how you feel? No, they don't. Or if you lose your husband or lose your wife. And somebody comes who's had that experience. Does that help? That's why God allows this to happen. That's why God allows this to happen. So you can come and minister to people who have had that same experience. That's what he says. Who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. I remember when uh, our daughter was born, who had a Hirschsprung's disease, which meant she had to wear... Uh, an appliance on her side for her stool. I know it's not nice to talk about, but it happened, okay? And so, you know, that's not a normal baby. 
and we didn't know how how do you live with this. But there were a group of Anabaptist people who had that experience before, and they invited us in. How do you think that felt? They knew. They understood. You could ask them questions. We could talk about the same language. Okay, same thing with deafness. We had two deaf children. And so when you walk that same path, and you walk with people who've had that path, we know what we're talking about. And God allows you to go through things so you can then comfort those because God comforted you in that situation. And he uses us to do that. Uh, He uses us to do that with each other. So to prove that God is the strength of your life, uh, to experience God's discipline in your life, and so you can identify with those who suffer. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, uh, there's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you're able with the temptation, also make a way of escape. He may be able to bear it. So in all the difficulties God brings to us, sometimes it's temptation. Uh, even when we are faced with sickness or sick children or loss of life, that can be a temptation for us to... to uh, my mind now goes to Job, where when he had all of his difficulties, he said, neither did he sin with his lips nor charge God foolishly. You get people get angry with God because why did you take my wife? Why did you allow my grandson to die? You know, why? And we can get this anger toward God. But Job did not charge God foolishly. And it's very important that we recognize who's in control of life. And it is indeed God. And so we experience that. And so we don't want to re- react against God. In Second Corinthians uh, chapter 12, <clears throat> in verse 7, it's just amazing when you start looking at the scripture to see who addresses these kinds of situations. Paul addresses this many times. Why? Because of all the things he'd been through. So in chapter 12, uh, in verse 7 of Second Corinthians, he says, Lest I should be exalted above measure, through the abundance of the revelations there was given me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Sometimes persecution or suffering comes to us because God wants to keep us humble. The Apostle Paul had a doctor's degree, okay, in the law. Do you think he knew everything? Yeah, he knew everything. He, he was the man. And, and he's, he addresses that, I think, here, lest I should be exalted above measure through, I think, the things he knew and then the abundance of the revelations, the way God revealed so many things to him and he could teach the people and it could have exalted him. And God brought a thorn in the flesh. We don't really know what it was. Some people think it was bad eyesight. Uh, I personally have my own thoughts about what it was. I think it was the false brethren in the church. Because he addresses that. In chapters 12 and 13, he addresses that. They're false brethren. They're false teachers. They're false apostles. And uh, maybe we should talk about that a little bit. If you look over at Galatians, I'm going to jump off of my paper here. In Galatians, we're pretty close to Galatians here. Galatians 4.16. In Galatians 4.16, what we're talking about now is the Apostle Paul and the way God gave him a thorn in the flesh so that he would not be exalted above measure. And, and we don't know what that thorn was. We do know that he asked God three times to remove it. And God said what? My grace is sufficient. God did not remove that source of pain from Paul. In Galatians 4, verse 16, he's talking to the Galatians, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Well, that's a hard question. When you tell people the truth, you expect them to respond. You don't expect them to become your enemy. But apparently, that's what happened. Then he changes the, the pronoun here in verse 17 of Galatians 4. They zealously affect you but not well. He told these people the truth, and they treated him like an enemy. Now there's another group out there called they, and they they have a lot of zeal when they talk to you. Instead of talking truth to you, they talk zeal. And now you like them better than you like me. Does that hurt when that happens? You're trying really diligently to work with somebody, and you're working with them, working with them, telling them truth, and you see some changes, and all of a sudden, somebody else comes in the side door, and now 
they're all excited about something which isn't even right, and the people follow them. That's what happened here. It's good, he says in verse 18, to be zealously affected in a good thing. And not only when I'm with you, my little children of whom I travail in birth again. So Christ be formed to you? How, how could a man say words like that? I don't know. I'm not trying to be funny. I mean, this is in the Bible. Okay? Can a man understand giving birth? I think the only way we can understand it is to, to see the pain in Paul's heart here. He has given birth to these people spiritually before, and now they've turned away, and he said, must I do it again? And I, and I just, for some of these reasons, I'll come back to the paper again here. For some of these reasons, I believe that the thorn in the flesh were these false teachers. And Paul just, they just don't go away. And Paul is constantly trying to bring truth. And these people are now, well, in his words, have I become your enemy because I've told you the truth? That's hard. Is that hard? You work diligently with somebody, and then they treat you like an enemy. Just a thought for you to think about. Because you're living the truth, uh, the life of Jesus is where I'm turning there to to uh, understand uh, that. So, somehow my paper got some repetition on the bottom of it, so my apologies for that. Uh, I guess we'll turn over to the other side while we're looking at this paper. I see my time is getting about to the end here. Uh, What happens? What happens to us as we go through life, as as organizations go through life, as churches go through life? Many times you look at the Anabaptist movement, for example. There was an awakening. There was a deliverance out of the Catholic system. Uh, The people developed faith. There was a commitment. And then there was persecution. And the persecution developed this austerity or this strictness uh, that made them very strong. And they grew and grew and grew. Uh, to, to, to follow the way they did was a very hard road. And then we got to America. And we got to Penn's Woods here. And William Penn had promised no persecution. And we put our roots down into the soil of Pennsylvania now we've been here for nine generations. Has that worked well? What happens then is this industry and production and prosperity, and then it becomes accumulation and comfort and protection. And after a while, we get sort of fat and lazy. And that's kind of what's going on with us today. It's really important that we think about. And I'll take you back to another part of, of Anabaptist history. The people in the north, uh, there, were, there were two Movements of the Mennonite Church. One was in Switzerland. That's where you folks would come from, Swiss brethren. The people in the north were from the Netherlands. That's where Menno Simons was from. The persecution was intense, north and south. The persecution in the north subsided long before it did in the south. When the persecution subsided in the north, the people got wealthy. Uh, they became part of the culture. Eventually, some of them joined Hitler's army, jumping way ahead. Why, how, did you, how would you go from being a persecuted people to people who pick up Hitler's guns? How could that happen? It did happen. And we have to be so careful about the way we allow the culture and the society to come in on us and eat us up and make us part of a system that will take us away from God. Persecution has kept us together. Even in this country, the wars kept us together. The Revolutionary War. We had to make documents to send to the government telling why we're not going to fight. World War One, we did the same thing. World War Two, did the same thing. World War Two, uh, my, my father and Lois's father were in CPS camps where they had to stand aside. of Mennonite young men went into the military. 90% of brethren young men went into the military. How could that happen? Non-resistant people? How could that happen? We need to think seriously about it. It did pull us together, but some of us had already moved into the society far enough that it didn't. When our boys were gone, Lois' father and my father were in camp for nearly five years. That's a long time to wait to come home to marry 
and start farming and become part of the church. <laughs> That's a long time, right? Five years? Long time. When I was in 1W service, it was only two years. Two years, and I could come home again. Second World War. And what the church had to do was get behind those boys. Sometimes he even gave them loans when they came home. <clears throat> if they needed money, the church would sometimes give them money because they worked for five years, three years, depending when they went in, uh, and they worked for just dollars a month, just enough to buy basic necessities. But it did pull our churches together, those of us who allowed it to do that. But <clears throat> the freedoms of our world today are kind of taking us the other direction. And we have to realize that God does have a purpose. Okay? And he wants us to be ready to give an answer. And he wants us to be committed to well-doing. Sometimes, <clears throat> see, I have another paper I want to read in closing here. Uh, how that Jesus tells us that we will suffer persecution. And then I wonder sometimes, just going to be reading from uh, Luke 6. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast your name out as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. There's the word joy again. When you're persecuted, uh, would that feel good to be put out? 95, Lois and I had the privilege of going to uh, Europe, and we saw the Anabaptist homelands where the Mennonites and Brethren began. And there were castles, places where they were taken and thrown into dungeons. There was one huge stone, looked like a silo, and right at, it was 13 feet deep into the ground. At ground level, if you looked in, it was 13 feet down to the base of the silo. Uh, and there was just a little doorway there. They would bring Anabaptists in there and literally throw them in the door. They would fall 13 feet. Uh, that's persecution. And every day they'd come and pour a little bit of food in there. And uh, our guide told us that if you got it before the rats got it, you got something to eat. And if you didn't, then you waited till the next day. And so we don't know anything about those things, do we? They did happen. They did happen. Could they happen again? Well, let me read this again. And then I'm going to sit down. Luke 6, 22. Blessed are ye when men shall hate you. Do you think those people felt hated? And when they separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast your name out as evil for the Son of Man's sake, for doing well. Rejoice ye in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. And I wonder sometimes, if I don't have that persecution, why? If Jesus had to suffer that, and he did, then I suppose I should too. And maybe that time's coming. We do know... <clears throat> That the truth shall make you free. We do know that God has a plan. We do know that your life has a story. We do know that Paul said, and as we should say, that the things that have happened to you have fallen out to the furnace of the gospel. And I trust that you can look at your life today and see the path on which God has chosen for you. And you're following that path faithfully. And that you see the way God is using your life to bring honor and glory to him and build his kingdom. Thank you. God bless you.